I didn't know if everyone would know that that's my dad. Um, you can probably see it. As, as I get older and I look in the mirror, I'm like, wow, I'm becoming more and more like my father, not just in appearance, but also in my cheesy jokes, as my wife reminds me of. But uh, as, as my dad mentioned, he uh, was my teacher in college in homiletics and in hermeneutics at Tennessee Temple University. So if I do not speak correctly or I mess up the text, the blame goes directly to my father, who was my teacher. So you can take up any complaints with him if I mess anything up. I'm happy to be here, uh, happy to see so many familiar faces that I've known uh, for so many years, um, especially on this side for some reason, <laughs> Davis yeah, Records. Uh, but yeah, it's just a privilege to be able to speak. I don't get to preach very often. Especially right now, I'm currently uh, training to become a firefighter for the city of Chattanooga, and so my schedule is is quite busy right now, but I'm happy to bring the word. I don't ever feel worthy, but I know that the Lord is worthy, and he uses, he uses his people. And so thank you for having me here tonight, and I hope that you're blessed and enriched by the text this, this evening. I want to start off by sharing a story with you. And you can turn to Genesis 29 if you're not there already. But I want to share a story entitled, It Happened on a Brooklyn Subway. There was a man by the name of Marcel Sternberger. It was January the 10th, 1948, shortly after World War II. And he took the 909 Long Island Railway every day to his commute, Monday through Friday, to go to work. He got on the train, as any usual day, but shortly on his trip, he decided and was reminded of a friend who was from the country of Hungary. Marcel was also from the country of Hungary. And he knew that this man was sick, and he decided to step off the railway and go visit this man. Later on in the day, after he visited his friend, he got back on the railway. This was a place that he had actually never been, one of the stations and lines that he had never been to. He steps into the car rail. And he sees that every seat is taken. As, he, as, as soon as he enters the railway, he sees a man just all of a sudden, like he remembers something, jump up and run out. And so Marcel decides to sit down in that seat. And Marcel is, is telling this story years ago, but he, he says that he was not one to typically speak to New Yorkers because he was foreign. And also he said New Yorkers were weird. <laughs> And so he sits down, and he decides not to speak, but he sees a man straight across from him who is reading a Hungarian newspaper in his native language, and so he speaks to the man in Hungarian. And he finds out that this man's name was Bella Paskins. And this man named Bella shares over the next 30 minutes an incredible story of how he went into the war and how he was captured by the Germans, how he went to a German labor camp. He was separated from his mother, his father, his brothers, his sisters, and his wife. And then he returned to the United States after the war ended about three months prior, and he had lost everything. Well, as he's sharing the story of the city of Desabren in Hungary, of his wife, and the many details, Marcel recognizes that this is a very familiar story that he's heard before. And so Marcel remembers of a woman that he had talked to just two weeks before who shared a very similar story. And this woman's story was so unique and so profound and so harsh that he wrote down her name, he wrote down her address, he wrote down her phone number. And, and so 
he, he digs through his address book and he finds the name of this lady named Mira. And he says, was your wife named Myra? And he says, that is my wife. And so, and so he, he just, he can't believe it. And so he, he takes, he takes Bella off of the, the train station. They go, they call his wife and they find out that his wife is living just a few blocks from him. And it's an incredible story, and, and, and they end up meeting up, and skeptics would say, what are the chances, what are the odds that he would happen to visit a friend and take a different train? What are the odds that he would happen to find the seat that's sitting straight across from Bella? What are the odds that Bella's reading a Hungarian newspaper, and so he decides to speak to him? What are the odds? What are the chances? Well, I'd like to say that there are no chances with God. God is in control. God was riding on that subway that morning on January 10th, January 10th, 1948. And so today, as we look at our, our passage in Genesis chapter 29, we're going to see that God is in control. God is sovereign. And it's easy, it's so easy to think of that and to repeat that. It's much harder to remember that when things are hard. But we're going to see how God weaves stories together and God's in control. Genesis Chapter 29. Then Jacob went on his journey and came into the land of the people of the east. And he looked, and behold, a well in the field, and lo, there were three flocks of sheep lying by it. For out of that well they watered the flocks, and a great stone was upon the well's mouth. And thither were all the flocks gathered, and they rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the sheep, and put the stone again upon the well's mouth in its place. And Jacob said unto them, My brethren, whence ye be? They said, Of Haran we are. And he said unto them, Know ye Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, We know him. And he said unto them, Is he well? And they said, He is well. Behold, Rachel his daughter cometh with the sheep. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you again for many, many things. I thank you for the freedom that we have. I thank you for the wealth that we have. I thank you for being able to worship freely. Lord, we are just so blessed, and we know that the reason that we're blessed is because of you. Lord, you give, you take away, but you have decided to bless many of us with so many things, and so we thank you for those things that we do not deserve. Thank you for your mercy and your grace. Use me now as I speak. May your word remain true. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. So if you're taking notes, I only have two points. The first is that Jacob finds his match. Jacob finds his match, and that is going to be Rachel, of course. Right before, in chapter 28, we see Jacob uh, had just deceived his father to receive the blessing. And then he's on his way. He, he bolts it out of there. He tries to get out of there quickly, and he's going to find a wife. And he encounters God in a dream. And so just back up a couple verses to verse 20 and 21. It says this, and Jacob vowed a vow after he, after he had uh, seen the Lord. He vowed a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and raiment to put on so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then, I, then shall the Lord be my God. And so he makes a vow. And I don't know exactly when Jacob came to know Yahweh as his God, but I almost like to think that perhaps Yahweh was his father Isaac's God, and now he's actually encountered God. And he's, he's determined that God is going to be his God. And so perhaps this is his sanctification, uh, or this is his salvation. 
And what happens after salvation comes sanctification. See, salvation is quick, and it's a high, and it's easy. Sanctification is long, and it's hard, it's a little arduous. And so he just experienced perhaps salvation and says, God, you are going to be my God. Well, now he's about to enter into the ups and downs of life. And he, he, he goes on his journey. It says that he went on his journey, meaning that he's on cloud nine. He picked up his feet. He's excited. He had just seen God in a vision. And he's going to find his wife. He, he enters the town where he knows his family is, and he sees this well. And it's really cool because this well, I believe, is the same well that's mentioned just five chapters before in Genesis 24. You may be familiar with the story of Rebecca, who is Jacob's mother, going out to water the camels of Abraham's servant. And this would have been a well in Haran. This could have been the same well that Jacob's mom would end up eventually meeting through this well her husband, Jacob's dad. And so he may have heard his mom talk about this well, and so he's encountering it, he sees it, he's like, this is where my mom kind of met my dad at this well. And so he's excited. He sees this well. This is the e-harmony of, of wells. This is where people meet. Things are happening. And this well is a gathering place. And he comes to the well. He meets the shepherds. It says, behold, the shepherds, or lo, the shepherds. And it says, behold, uh, they know Laban. And then behold, here comes Rachel. It's God that's saying, behold, look at this. Behold, look at this. Behold, look at this. God is setting up a story. God is weaving together Jacob's life. It's almost as if God is setting something up. It's almost as if God is in control. We see God's providence woven completely in the story. It reminds me, you don't have to turn there. You can if you wish, but it reminds me of Proverbs 16, verse 9. It says, a man's heart devises his way, but the Lord directs his steps. And so we make plans and and. And sometimes, through sin or through wrongdoing, we choose to go to the left when maybe the Lord would have us go to the right. And sometimes we have two good options laid before us, two great options, maybe two jobs, and we decide to take the job on the right, and we think, should I have taken the job on the left? When it all comes down to it, no matter what we choose or even through our sin, the Lord is so good and so sovereign that he uses those choices, those mistakes, he uses those for his glory. We serve a sovereign God that is in control. And you see it in this text, and you see it throughout Scripture, and hopefully you see it in your life and the lives of those around you. God is in control. And so let's look back at the text. Rachel is coming. And Jacob, well, Jacob, we know three things about Jacob. We know that Jacob is single. We know that not only is he single, he's looking for a wife. And we know that, number three, he's a schemer. And so this is, I find this interesting. So he plans, I think, to get alone with Rachel. So verse 7, he says, he said, lo, it is yet high. He's saying this to the shepherds. It's high day. Neither is it time that the cattle should be gathered together. Water the sheep. Go, feed them. And then the shepherds respond uh, Negatively to him, he said, we cannot until the flocks be gathered together till they roll the stone from the well's mouth. Then we water the sheep. So his plan, perhaps his plan, doesn't work. The shepherds aren't going anywhere. These are government-paid shepherds. They're just going to sit there and wait. So they're idle. They're waiting. And so Jacob's like, you could just go. They decide not to go. So then 
maybe perhaps he decides, you know what, I'm going to go to plan B. They're not leaving. Here comes this beautiful woman. Uh, They're not leaving. I can't get alone with her, so let me go to plan B. Verse 9. While he yet spake with them, Rachel, she ends up coming with her father's sheep, for she kept them. And it came to pass when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, that Jacob went near, rolled the stone from the well's mouth, and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. And so his first plan, perhaps, to get her alone didn't work. You know, he's trying to, he sees this woman, he wants to impress her, so then he rolls up his sleeve, and he single-handedly rolls the stone away from the well, from the mouth of the well. And scholars believe uh, a couple things. Number one, some scholars believe that perhaps God gave him supernatural ability to roll this stone away, because here you have several shepherds sitting there, not able to do it. I like to believe that they were just lazy, And maybe they could, but they decided not to. But either way, he rolls this away when Rachel comes. It just reminds me of just a typical man trying to impress a woman. And very much reminds me of when I met my wife, Katie. Uh, We have been married for 11 months, going on a year at the end of this month. But when she first came to meet me, we, we actually met online. And so we had been talking to each other for hours on the phone and text messaging, and you know, you're in that new relationship, and so you're, you're spending so much time talking. Well, today was the day that I was going to be able to meet her. This weekend, she was going to come, and I was going to meet her. Well, I just happened to have a volleyball tournament planned that weekend. If you know me, I play a lot of volleyball. So she comes in, and I remember just for some reason, I just had to impress her. Like, I was playing volleyball, and I was like, I'm just going to spike as hard as I can. I'm going to get blocks. Like, I just have to impress this woman. Little did I know she's going to be my wife. Either way, I wanted to impress her, as I still do today. Take notes, men. Still impress your wife. And so I remember looking over, and she's, you know, all these people, all of my friends are, like, talking to her when I'm playing. I'm just like, she's not even watching me. Um, But but I'm trying to impress her. I want her to see how strong I am. And this is what Jacob's doing to his future wife. And we see in verse 11, we see Jacob... He, 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 shows, he shows that he's a macho man, but we also see he has intimacy. He's a sweet guy, too. He's strong and sweet. He's the perfect combination. Verse 11, and Jacob kissed Rachel, lifted up his voice, and wept. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's brother. That brother is the word kinsman. He's literally uh, her father's nephew. And that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. And so Jacob finds his match. Second point of tonight is that Jacob now, as we see here in the next few verses, Jacob finds that he's unmatched. Or sorry, outmatched. Jacob finds that he's outmatched. Verse 13. We're going to read a few verses here. 13. It came to pass when Laban heard the tidings of Jacob, his sister's son, that he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. And he told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, Surely thou art bone in my flesh. And he abode with him the space of a month. And Laban said unto Jacob, Because thou art my brother, shouldest thou therefore serve me for naught? Tell me, what shall your wages be? And Laban had two daughters. The name of the elder was Leah. The name of the younger was Rachel. Leah was tender-eyed, also translated as weak-eyed. But Rachel was beautiful and well-favored. And Jacob loved Rachel and said, I will serve thee seven years for Rachel, thy younger daughter. And Laban said, It is better that I should give her to thee than that I should give her to another man. Abide with me. And Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed unto him but a few days for the love that he had for her. 
And so at first we see in verse 13, Laban seems like a great guy. He comes out to meet him. He embraces him. He kisses him. This is a sign of respect, and this is a sign of favor. And so things are going well. Things are off to a great start. And then he says, even stay with me. And he stays with him for a month, rent-free. But that one month later on, we come to find out, actually turns into 20 years because Laban would end up scheming Jacob. He says, what, what, you know, you're, you're here for a month, but let's plan something out. What do you want? Go ahead and work for me. And so Jacob decides, or they decide seven years. Seems like a very long time. I think it was. And this time, a man did not buy a wife, but it was customary to have a bride price. And we see that actually in scripture elsewhere. But Jacob has no money to offer, and so he offers himself in his service. So he decides to serve, and they, they come, uh, they agree on seven years, but it seems like just days for his love for Rachel. It says that Rachel was beautiful and well-favored in verse 17. That word beautiful and well-favored mean that she had curves. She was shapely. She was beautiful. Whereas Leah, we see, was dim-eyed or weary. And Leah's name actually means, in Hebrew, a female cow. Her name means heifer. So here you have, here you have this beautiful, well-shaped woman, Rachel, and then you have her older sister whose name is Heifer. Seems a bit unfair. And so Jacob is eyeballing Rachel. He wants Rachel. And Leah is kind of discarded. But what's awesome about this story, as we'll come to find out, is even though Leah was discarded, maybe perhaps by her husband, she was not discarded by God. And God was in control. God is sovereign. Sometimes your plans don't work out because God has better ones. Sometimes your plans don't work out because God has better ones. God is in control. And so let's go ahead and finish our text, verse 21. And Jacob said unto Laban, Give me my wife, for my days are fulfilled, that I may go into her. And Laban gathered together all the men of the place and made a feast. Verse 23, And it came to pass in the evening, he took Leah his daughter and brought her to him, and he went in unto her. And Laban gave unto his daughter Leah Zilpha his maid for a handmaid. And he came to pass it in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And he said to Laban, What is this that thou hast done unto me? Did not I serve with thee for Rachel? Wherefore hast thou then beguiled me? Laban said, It must not be done so in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Fulfill her week, and we will give thee also the service for which thou shalt serve with me yet another seven years. And Jacob did so and fulfilled her week, and he gave him Rachel his daughter to wife also. And Laban gave to Rachel his daughter Bilhah his handmaid to be her maid. And verse 30, And he went in also unto Rachel, and he loved also Rachel more than Leah, and served with him yet another seven years. And so we see in verse 21, the, the, the big day, the wedding is approaching. And I find it funny that Laban just happens to forget that day. And so Jacob has to remind Laban, saying, okay, it's, it's time for me to marry your daughter. The time of seven years has approached. And guess what Laban does? We see he swaps out his daughters. And this is very interesting because this is the only time I've ever heard of this happening. If you've heard of this happening in real life, please share with me, because I don't think this has happened maybe since this time, where the bride has been swapped out for a sister. 
This is, uh, this is the, the worst of the worst. This is Laban scheming. And I, I wondered as I read that text, like, how did this happen? Like, how could you just switch out uh, sisters? And so there are three theories, three reasons that scholars believe. Number one is that uh, darkness. So it would have been candle lit. You know, there wouldn't have been much light. Number two, it was customary for a bride to wear a veil over her face. So perhaps Jacob didn't actually get to see. Uh, and then number three is perhaps there was alcohol involved. Or maybe there's a combination of all these things. Either way, he's going to marry Rachel, and then Leah gets slipped in. And so it's fascinating that this happens. And, and Jacob is like, what have you done to me? And Laban's like, okay, just serve another seven years. Just work for me 14 years, and then I'll give you my other daughter. We see this deception. We see something that you're like, God, what are you doing? I'm sure Jacob had those questions. What, what are you doing, Yahweh? Why have you done this to me? Why have you allowed this to happen? But God, as we know, is in control. If you're like me, you might be reminded of a similar story just a few chapters before where Jacob deceived his father into getting the blessing. And so it just reminds me of Genesis 6, 7 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a person sows, what? He will reap. And so we see Jacob, the ultimate schemer, is getting schemed now by Laban. And boy, did Jacob reap. But guess what? God had a bigger plan for Jacob than Jacob had for himself. That's the same for you. And so as we close, let me give you two application points. Number one is that the Lord taught Jacob to wait. The Lord taught Jacob to wait. He waited 14 years. 14 years he had to work. He has a way of teaching us to wait, doesn't he? You may be waiting on a phone call. You may be waiting on your son or daughter to return to the Lord. You may be waiting on a medical decision. You may be waiting on a job. I don't, I don't know what you may be waiting on or what you've waited for. But God's timing is so different than our timing. Now, a thousand days, right? is one day to the Lord. The Lord is in control, and the Lord has a way of making us wait. And so Jacob waited 14 years. Every, today, we, we hate waiting, right? We have Google, where we can find information at our fingertips. We have fast food. We have prime two-day shipping. We have five-minute oil changes. We, we hate waiting. But God is a God who allows us to wait, because that's the way that we grow. So the Lord taught Jacob to wait. And we know what waiting does. Isaiah 40, 31. They that wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Maybe you're waiting here this morning, or sorry, this evening. God is in control. Use his resources. Use his people. Go to him in the midst of waiting. And then lastly, application number two. As you've, as you've heard me say four, five, six, twenty times, God is in control. God's plan for your life far exceeds the circumstances of your day. The perfect example of this, and this is why I'm bringing it up now, and I know my wife, she's like, why, why are you bringing this up now? Because this is my, my last closing point, is Jacob wants Rachel. He neglects Leah, but God has a plan for Leah. 
And if you know the word and you know where the lineage of Christ comes from, it's from Leah. So Leah has Judah, Judah has Boaz, Boaz has David. The lineage goes on and on in that order. And so Leah, neglected, weary, dim-eyed, the one that's not really wanted, the outcast, the one whose father could not find for her a husband, I'm sure she felt that pain. She named her children after her pain, essentially, because the Lord gave her children to bless her. But she was in pain. She was waiting. She was struggling. And all the while, God is weaving together something that you could never have dreamed of. He is saying to Leah, she would never know until this side after heaven, but she wouldn't know that the lineage of Christ, God's son, would come through this woman. God is in control. So you may never know what may happen when you pass away. You may not know why your decision ended up the way it did. But God has got a plan for you and I that we could never have imagined. God is in control. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you that you are a sovereign God. And I don't know, this is, this is a time, I think, that we are just often reminded of feeling like we don't have control. We look at our country, our, our nation. We look at nations around us who are uh, at war. We look at our politics. And we, we look at the economy and we wonder, where are you, God? What is going on? Why is this happening to me? But God, we're thankful that in the midst of waiting, in the midst of what seems like shambles or just the midst of confusion, that you are sovereign. Thank you for being a sovereign God, that you are a God that's the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. Thank you for never changing, for always having our back, that we can come to you whenever we want. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for being a God who has everything figured out. We ask these things in Christ's name I pray. Amen.